Welcome to this week's episode of Mum Will Know with me, Claire Wind, midwife and mum. Join me each week as we delve into topics from conception to kids in kindy with the aim to become confident and well-informed mums. Hey guys, I'm so glad to have you back for part two of my look at inductions of labour. If you haven't listened to last week's episode, make sure you do that first, otherwise you'll probably be a bit lost going into today's episode. Uh, But just to get your head back in the game again, I thought I'd run over a brief summary of part one. Basically, we learnt that an induction of labour is an intervention that occurs to stimulate the start of labour. And then we went through the different steps that are often taken to induce labour, from methods used to soften and ripen the cervix, like the use of cervidil or gel or the balloon catheter, to then the breaking of waters, so it's called an ARM, artificial rupture of membranes, to then finally the synthetic oxytocin infusion. We heard a little of Mum Will Know Listener Tolly McRae's experience having an induction for preeclampsia, and we also found out a little bit about how common inductions are in Australia, that actually over 30% of Australian women now have their labours induced. Okay, so now we know what an induction is, including the many different steps that may be used to finally get a woman in labour. But the important question is now, why are 30% or more of Australian women having an induction? So there are actually quite a number of indications or reasons for an induction of labour, some of which are based on the well-being of the mum and others the well-being of the baby. And the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare report that I actually mentioned last episode, they shared that prolonged pregnancy and maternal choice were the two main reasons for inductions in Australia. So I'll unpack these indicators and a few more of the common reasons that women are offered an induction. Firstly, though, I just want to point out that research is always changing and updating guidelines around indications for induction of labor. And sometimes the research can have some conflicting ideas. Uh, And I'd say because of this, every hospital or health district tends to have different policies around each of these factors. So as I share this information, just remember that the specifics may actually look a bit different at your hospital or through the care provider you're going through. So really, I'd be wanting to look into the specifics for your case individually, talk to your care provider about induction, especially if any of these indications that I'm about to go through are relevant for you or your pregnancy. So to start with, let's look at some of the common reasons that induction is recommended for the sake of the mum's health. So as I mentioned before, maternal choice is one of the main reasons that AIHW report found women in Australia are being induced. However, actually, most clinical guidelines tend to not support this as a routine indication for induction. Guidelines that do speak on timing for induction based on maternal requests state that it should actually only be offered under exceptional circumstances. Like, for example, your partner's in the army and is about to be posted overseas And so, of course, timing, you'd want your partner around to have the baby. But even in those cases, those exceptional circumstances, the timing of an induction should only occur after 39 weeks gestation. And we'll get into the risks of induction soon. But basically, this is just showing that we don't want to be jumping willy nilly. I don't know if that's a thing, you know, but we just don't want to be jumping into an intervention when it's not actually medically indicated. Another one that's based on the mum is mental health. Uh, I couldn't actually find heaps out there about recommending induction for mental health reasons, especially in terms of how many weeks gestation the woman should be induced. 
Victoria Health just include mental health as another reason for induction, depending on individual woman's circumstances, but they don't go into the specifics of timing. So I guess it would just be a case-by-case basis. And then we go into a medical condition called hypertension and also preeclampsia. So hypertension is your high blood pressure. Uh, preeclampsia is what Tolly experienced, if you remember back to her induction story last episode. From what I can tell, most clinical guidelines recommend induction for women who have hypertensive disorders, but timing generally ranges from 37 to 39 weeks, depending on whether it's gestational hypertension, so it's picked up in the pregnancy, or chronic hypertension, and also whether the woman is otherwise well. In terms of preeclampsia, guidelines are pretty consistent in recommending induction for women whose onset of preeclampsia begins at 37 weeks or term. And as we remember from last week's story, this was Tolly's experience. You know, she started having symptoms uh, when she was 38 weeks, I think. Um, And so then once she'd explained that to them, they didn't hesitate to say, let's get this baby out. Uh, However, if preeclampsia develops preterm, so before 37 weeks, guidelines do vary depending on the women's symptoms, uh, with some guidelines recommending induction from as early as 34 weeks. Delivery is what resolves preeclampsia, so it becomes a bit of a juggle in terms of risks for the mother versus risks for the baby. And timing of delivery is generally chosen once the maternal risks are so severe that the baby needs to be born for the mother's sake. And those potential risks that come with the baby being born early, in comparison, actually far more manageable. Another indication for the mother's sake is cholestasis, which is actually a liver condition. And it shows up in pregnancy as intense itchiness with no rash to show for it. And in particular, women complain of itchy palms and the bottom of their feet. Uh, There's some concern about the risk of stillbirth after 37 weeks associated with cholestasis, although this could also just be associated with the general population stillbirth rates rising. And often induction is recommended from 37 weeks. It generally depends on individual circumstances like maternal age, uh, the baby being well, and other clinical factors like increasing bile acids and liver enzymes, which are tested through blood tests and things like that. Uh, And the only cure, again, for cholestasis is delivering the baby. So it's another one of those times where you have to weigh out the risks of cholestasis and the benefits of early delivery for the mother and then the potential complications for the baby. Another indication for induction is a history of precipitate or a fast labor. I've definitely heard this one talked about as a reason for induction, as there's this concern that if their previous baby had such a quick labor, then who knows how fast the next one will be, and heaven forbid you don't make it to hospital in time. Now, I understand the idea of giving birth before making it to the hospital can actually be really scary for both the woman and her her partner too, but Generally, if you've labored that quickly and had a baby on the way to hospital or at home, you really didn't need the help of healthcare professionals. You know, you've done it. Of course, it's not ideal when you have planned hospital birth, but in terms of using this as a reason for induction, it seems like generally the guidelines do not support this as a reason to be induced. And then, of course, Another reason women should should have an induction or are offered an induction are due to other pre-existing maternal medical conditions, things like cardiac issues, renal disease, diabetes, you know, the list could go on. It's an individual case-by-case basis, of course. Okay, and so now let's go into some reasons for induction that come up due to concerns with the baby. So the first one is post-dates or prolonged pregnancy. 
Now, most guidelines recommend induction of labor between 41 and 42 weeks gestation. I've mentioned in previous episodes, actually, that although women have been given an estimated date of birth, it's actually pretty normal to give birth anywhere from 37 to 42 weeks gestation. And it's quite unlikely that you will spontaneously have your baby on your due date. The reason induction is recommended for prolonged pregnancy is that the rates of stillbirth rise to one in a thousand at 42 weeks gestation. Women may be offered increased monitoring from about 41 weeks until the baby's born, whether they eventually are born spontaneously or by an induction of labor, just to keep an eye on the baby. Another reason that a woman would be induced due to concern about the baby is decreased fetal movements. And this is something we take really seriously. Pregnant women are the only people able to know what amount or type of movement is normal for their baby. And if the mother's concerned, then we as health professionals are also concerned. It's important to know that babies don't stop moving at the end of pregnancy. Your baby should be active and moving just as they did throughout the whole third trimester. Yes, sometimes the type of movement changes because the baby's kind of stuck in one position by the end, but you should definitely still be feeling very regular movements. In terms of what the guidelines say, all guidelines agree that decreased fetal movements is an appropriate indication for induction of labor. And timing of induction is just generally based on gestation, so how many weeks in the pregnancy you are, concern, like the level of concern by the mother, as well as uh, results from fetal well-being tests. So we're, we're keeping an eye on the baby as well. Another indication for labor is what's known as oligohydramnios, which is basically a low amount of amniotic fluid. So amniotic fluid is what the baby's floating around in inside of their mums, and it's essential for a healthy pregnancy as it acts not only as a cushion to keep the baby safe inside, but it also promotes expansion and development of the baby's lungs. A decreased amount of amniotic fluid is never normal. And that's picked up on ultrasound. So again, the timing of induction for oligo would depend on the severity of concern and results from testing fetal well-being. It's also important to know if oligo is an isolated risk or actually in conjunction with other risk factors, which may be cause for more concern. Generally, a term induction would be offered, which is, you know, 37 or 38 weeks. Or if the mother prefers and there aren't any further risk factors, increased monitoring can happen and what's known as expectant management would occur, which is basically to wait for labor to start on its own. Another concern for babies that would bring out a recommendation for induction is what's called intrauterine growth restriction. So growth restriction is associated with higher rates of stillbirth as well as other perinatal morbidities. And if reduced fetal growth is suspected, generally extra monitoring will happen throughout the pregnancy, so like extra ultrasounds and things like that. And sometimes ending the pregnancy early actually may be recommended to care for the baby. The majority of guidelines recommend induction based on the severity of the growth restriction and also results of, again, fetal well-being testing. Another indication would be a suspected macrosomia or um, a large baby. So macrosomia increases the risk of the obstetric emergency known as shoulder dystocia. And there is actually some research which shows that the incidence of clavicle fractures in babies is reduced when labors are induced. However, suspected macrosomia alone is generally not considered an acceptable indication for induction unless it's partnered with other risk factors. 
although there are some guidelines that recommend induction for confirmed cases of macrosomia, and I put confirmed in in inverted commas because, you know, this in and of itself can be questioned because confirmation is generally by ultrasound and that isn't an exact art. So these guidelines recommend timing of induction to be around 38 weeks, but again, it depends on how big the baby's measuring in relation to its gestation. Another indication for induction would be what's known as prolonged rupture of membranes or PROM, PROM. And this can occur preterm, so less than 37 weeks, or at term, so that would be at or over 37 weeks, where the waters have broken but labor hasn't actually started naturally. So if it's preterm PROM, guidelines consistently recommend induction should not occur if the waters have broken before 34 weeks unless there's additional complications like concern the baby's really unwell. Uh, Whereas if the woman's 34 to 37 weeks, so getting closer to term, induction can be offered or women can choose expectant management. So these two options are generally recommended depending on the risks and benefits to the mother and the baby. Whereas if PROM happens at 37 weeks or greater, so your term, guidelines can be a little bit more conflicting. Basically what's happened is that the waters have broken but labour hasn't actually naturally started. So there's this concern that there's an infection that can arise because the baby's no longer protected by the bag of waters. Some guidelines recommend induction should occur ASAP or within 24 hours of the waters breaking. And then other guidelines say that expectant management can be offered if the woman desires and the baby looks well. Some guidelines also differ if the woman has a positive GBS swab, which normally happens at 36 weeks, where women who are positive should have the induction with greater urgency than those who had a negative swab. Um, I'll do another episode on GBS because uh, the way it's tested for can actually be a bit controversial, so it should be understood properly, but that's just worth noting when thinking about PROM. Okay, another reason for induction might be twins. So the concern for twin pregnancies is that the risk of stillbirth rises with advancing gestational age. And there are some guidelines which recommend women with uncomplicated twin pregnancies where twin one is head down, which is the right position, that they be induced around 37 or 38 weeks gestation. There are also some guidelines that go more specifically into earlier dates for induction based on the type of twin pregnancy, so whether the babies are in the same bag of waters or not. But interestingly, the World Health Organization does not recommend induction for women with an uncomplicated twin pregnancy at term. So they just kind of are like, let her body do its thing. All right, another reason for induction might be maternal age. So the risk that comes with what's known as advanced maternal age, which forms the grounds for induction, is that the risk of stillbirth is increased. And most guidelines on induction of labor for advanced maternal age basically state to offer induction for women who are 40 years old or over between 39 or 40 weeks. Interestingly, though, Victoria Health Guidelines state advanced maternal age on its own is not an acceptable reason for induction. So this is another one where you see the conflicting advice and it makes you just kind of think twice about the fact that one place is saying it's not a valid reason while the other place is saying it is a valid reason. So it's worth really discussing and thinking through. All right, another reason with concern for the baby's health would be gestational diabetes. And there seems to be a big variation in recommendations around induction for women with gestational diabetes. It seems that some recommend induction from 40 weeks if there are no other indications for concern, 
But if the pregnancy has had further complications or risks, like maybe the woman actually needed interstellate in the pregnancy, or that there's concern that the baby is macrosomic, like I said before, like the big baby, and that brings its own risks, uh, then an induction between like 38 or 39 weeks is recommended. And I actually have an interview prepared for next week's episode talking through gestational diabetes. So look forward to that one. Um, And as I said before, women who have type 1 or type 2 diabetes, so like a chronic medical condition, are often recommended induction as well, depending on the management of the diabetes and, again, further complications with the mum and the baby. Okay, so as you can see, there are so many reasons why an induction may be recommended, and this is not a complete list by any means. Although, even though the reasons I've touched on above may be appropriate for induction in some cases, in others, they may not mean an induction is required. So I've said it before, but I'll say it again. Every case is different and every individual will need to speak with their care provider about their own individual case. I feel like one of those um, radio ads or whatever, where they have a monotone voice come at the end stating the disclaimer, but legitimately everything I've discussed in today's episode is for informational purposes only. It's not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice and should not be relied upon or used as personal advice. Sorry for the formality there, but I just wanted to make that clear. All right. So finally, it's worth noting what risks come with having an induction. I touched on the idea that sometimes it's a juggle to determine the right time for induction or delivery based on the health of the mum versus the risks that may arise due to early delivery for the baby. So again, I think it's important to unpack those potential risks. Having an induction, as with all interventions during labour and birth, does bring with it increased risk to both the mother and baby. And research also shows inductions are associated with less maternal satisfaction. So it's not something you should go into lightly, and it's definitely an intervention that needs to be explained and discussed, both the benefits and risks, very clearly. It's also really important that healthcare providers offer the research and recommendations based on research, but more importantly, they need to respect the questions, the concerns, and ultimately the decision-making that the mother and her partner make once they're fully informed. So different methods of induction bring with them their own risks. Medical methods by use of prostaglandin, so the gel and the servadil, which I touched on last episode, they have the potential to cause what's known as uterine hyperstimulation, which is where the uterus is contracting so regularly that there actually isn't enough rest between contractions, which means then that the baby actually can be distressed because it's not getting enough oxygen. And then you see that in the heart rate dropping, which is known as a deceleration. So depending on how bad the decelerations are, different steps will be taken. So the first being to remove the prostaglandin gel or the servadil. And as I mentioned last episode, the servadil is far easier to remove because it's just pulling like a little tampon string. And the aim of that is to hopefully stop or slow the contractions and give the baby a rest. Hyperstimulation is also possible with the use of oxytocin, um, the oxytocin infusion, and if it occurs, then the infusion basically should be reduced or paused to allow the baby to get a rest. If the baby remains in distress, generally delivery will be recommended, and this is normally either by a cesarean section, because it's an emergency, unless the cervix is fully dilated and the baby's close to being born vaginally, and then in that case, the mum would either push baby out or an instrumental delivery would be needed. The risks of hyperstimulation is one reason why women need to be monitored during the induction process. So the CTG monitors the baby's heart rate and it also picks up then 
you know, any of those decelerations that occur. Often having an induction is spoken about as starting the cascade of interventions, uh, where basically one intervention leads to the need for more interventions. For example, like I've just spoken about, the baby is in distress because of the induction process, and so it needs to be delivered by a cesarean section. Other interventions that come with induction include the use of CTG, which I've just explained. So continuous monitoring by a CTG is known to increase the rate of cesarean section and instrumental births, and it's also known to limit women's abilities to move and change positions in labour, as well as sometimes have access to the birth pool or bath. Uh, And, of course, that will impact women's coping strategies for pain, which can then lead to women requesting medical pain relief options. So as you can hear, just starting with one little intervention may actually have you almost snowballing into a range of other interventions. Inductions tend to mean women labour for longer durations than a spontaneous labour. So one study found that inductions actually go for six to seven hours longer than a spontaneous labour. And it's also found that women who have been induced are more likely to request medical methods of pain relief, and in particular the epidural, uh, than those who have laboured spontaneously. And of course, these medical methods of pain relief then bring with them their own risks, which you can find out about in episode 12, where I talk about pain relief. There's also the potential for what's known as a failed induction, which is where methods to either ripen the woman's cervix don't work, so there's no way to get to the bag of waters to break them, or the waters have been broken and the oxytocin drip started, but after hours and hours and hours, there's no change to the mother's cervix and it actually isn't dilating. So if this occurs and what's and it's termed a failed induction, the next step is generally for a cesarean section. So then there's the step which is known as the artificial rupture of membranes, the ARM, It has the potential risk of cord prolapse where the umbilical cord falls out of the cervix before the presenting part, which is normally the head. So this is quite rare, but it's most risky if the baby is not engaged, so its head's not jammed in the pelvis as the ARM is performed. And if a cord prolapse does occur, it's a medical emergency as it can actually mean that the blood and and therefore the oxygen circulation to the baby's cut off. An ARM can also bring with it an increased risk of infection for both the mother and baby, which I talked about when talking about one of the reasons for induction. And in terms of newborn health, the rising rates of induction has been linked with a rise in preterm birth and its associated complications. Like we touched on where you have to weigh up the risks of mum's health versus risks to baby being born early. Sometimes it does need to happen, but that will mean that the baby needs some extra support, whether that's in the NICU or the nursery and yeah, it, it might need some some extra care to do well. It is clear that baby's born premature, so before 37 weeks, uh, as well as what's known as early term, so between 37 and 38 plus 6 days, so just before 39 weeks. They also have higher rates of morbidity as well as additional needs for our healthcare resources during their first year of life compared to those babies born at 39 and 40 weeks. So that's really interesting to take note of as well. Long-term outcomes comparing children born by induction versus children who were born following expectant management are quite minimal though, so we don't really have the long-term answers there. Another risk which I highlighted though earlier is that induction of labour leads to decreased maternal satisfaction. So research shows that often women feel they don't have much of a choice in the matter when induction is recommended, And a large number of women report negative experiences and dissatisfaction following an induction. 
And I know I did a um, Instagram post a month or so ago, and there was definitely a fair few of you guys out in the mum will know community who felt either traumatized or disappointed by their induction experience, which is horrible. And and it's it's so important that women are included and respected in the decision-making process around their birth. So these are just some of the risks associated with induction and the research is constantly updating and changing around these topics. So of course, talking to your healthcare provider is the best way to go. But going into these conversations prepared will mean hopefully you're taken more seriously, not that you shouldn't be taken seriously otherwise, but I think showing that your care provider that you've, you know, got some prior knowledge and questions gives them the opportunity to properly talk through all the risks and benefits in your specific case. And again, Ideally, they should do it anyway for all women, but as the research shows, often women don't feel like they've been properly informed or included in the decision-making. Of course, induction of labour is a necessary intervention when the risks of continuing the pregnancy outweigh the risks that come with intervening. But the fact that induction has risks means that you wouldn't want to go into it lightly, especially if you're not yet 39 weeks. And of course, every case needs to be looked at individually, comparing the risks of remaining pregnant with the risks of prompt delivery. I'll do another episode on non-medical ways to induce labor, as this is something I get asked about quite a bit. And if you've been a woman who's passed your due date, I'm sure you've been a Googler and you've found some interesting kind of ideas to get labor started. So it's worth following up on. But yeah, let's leave this conversation here. I hope you're not completely sick of my voice and ramblings about induction. I promise next week I will shut up and let someone else talk again. If you feel like you want to know more about inductions, though, I have included in the show notes all the research that I've used in putting together this week and last week's episode. So you can catch that at mumwillknow.com. And as always, I really want to know what you think of the podcast. For one thing, are these topics that I do on my own actually helpful or are you more like, ugh, Claire, just do interviews already? So please do let me know because I do care what you think. Connect with me on Instagram and Facebook at Mum Will Know. Also subscribe to the podcast so that you're up to date and all set for next Tuesday's episode. And if you're able to, I would so appreciate if you could do me a big favour and rate and review the podcast in Apple Podcasts because I basically love you forever. (laughs) Anyway, once again, I'm rambling, so I'll stop. Um, See you guys.